This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. We just, I think, expect our kids to be able to just move into adulthood, right? Like, we, hey, you know, we got you... We got you through high school, and now we're going to send you off to college, and then you're just going to get it. But there's probably so much more to becoming an adult um, than just maturing and just growing older, right? At some point, you know they're not very well prepared. If you've ever dropped your kid off for college, you probably realize, oh, boy, I don't know if I ever taught him to iron. It's one of the benefits of – like in the LDS church, we send our missionaries out and uh, boy, if our kids don't know how to make a meal, to work, to exercise, I mean, it's, you may be creating, you may be creating a monster if, if you're not setting your kids up to succeed one way or another. But as Andy got into this idea of uh, just being nice, wouldn't that be one of the most important lessons we could give anybody today, especially to our children, is the idea of feeling um some compassion for the people that are around us, feeling a sense of compassion for the people in this world. I find it interesting that um, we're so quick to dismiss people today. We're so quick to just eliminate uh, an entire group of people because of where they were born or how they are born. Um, And it it just seems like why on earth do we need to draw such a small circle (laughs) Why can't we keep the circles bigger and, and why can't we allow you know people to just make mistakes in life? It, being mad about someone else's mistake doesn't in any way, shape, or form actually eliminate their mistake. It just makes it more difficult for people to move on. And as we see it in our political world uh, – Regardless, we can't be bullies. Even if you have the bully pulpit, even if you have the most important position in the world, you 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 still have to use it with some honor, with some respect, don't you? Because if not, what are we becoming? And so I don't know. I, I look at it and I think, what's going on with us that we that we don't get this? Uh, the Dalai Lama has a great quote. He says, "People were created to be loved." Things were created to be used. The reason why the world is in chaos is because things are being loved and people are being used. What do you think of that? Do you think we're spending way too much time loving things, our phones, our apps, our ideas, our positions, our party affiliations, and instead we're just using the people in our life? You know, we like the people in our life as long as they meet our needs. We like the people in our life as long as they get us what we want. We use them. Kind of like you would a wrench, right? Or a a basketball. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. But at some point, these are human beings. And these human beings need to be understood. They need to be cared for. Have we got it backwards? I'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you have any ideas on that, uh, text us at Dr. Matt Show. Um, because uh, really, at some point, we've got to stop seeing other people as just something that we can beat up or throw out or dispose of or build a wall around or ignore. 
and instead start seeing people as, you know, human beings, offspring from a higher power. I, I can only imagine what uh, what our God would think we're like as we just use each other for everything, for jobs, for alike. How interesting, too, that what happens to us when we simply separate ourselves by being able to make an anonymous comment on a YouTube or a Facebook page. How all of a sudden we turn into somebody that we wouldn't be proud of, that we wouldn't want anyone else to know we either talk like that or act like that or respond like that. And then there's those that wouldn't care. And why wouldn't they care that they're demeaning another or pulling another person down? Something's going on there, and it might be, and the Dalai Lama may be onto it, uh, are we using people? Martin Buber used to talk about this idea of um, – uh, he called it I-it or I-thou where we have a relationship with people and the relationship is either going to be I, which is me, in relation to an it, a thing, or the I, me, in relation to a thou, which would be kind of a highly respected uh, other person. So think about your relationships in your life. Do you tend to approach the people around you more like a, like they are an it, a thing, or do you approach them like that they are a, a thou? Remember, we use the word thou when you're praying to deity, when you're referring to the higher power that is has incredible, uh, incredible value, incredible worth. I, it, or I, thou. I think it's an important part for all of us to be looking at and uh, and actually evaluate our lives through that spectrum. Do we do we affiliate with people that treat others like its and things, or like you know thous and beings? It's going to eventually come back, I think, to hurt all of us if we're only treating people like its and things. Eventually, we demean and debase the entire human race. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Could we ever expect our healthcare system to care more about our health than we do? You know, in the end, how much, if you could take a pill to lower your cholesterol or, and, your, and, and eliminate some of your heart disease, or if you had to, you know, exercise, meditate, uh, do some yoga, um, and, and all of these other things that demand so much of you, would you do it? in order to create better health for yourself? Well, according to a nationwide survey conducted earlier this year by Harris Poll on behalf of CareerBuilder, it says that 56% of U.S. employees think that they are overweight. That sentiment of uh, 3,420 full-time workers um, in the study, half of those felt like they were overweight. According to the findings, two in five workers believe they've put on pounds in their current job on par with last year, 25% said they gained more than 10 pounds in the last year. 10% gained more than 20 pounds. Why the weight gain? It's attributed to sitting at the desk. 51% of the people blamed sitting at the desk all day. Too tired from work to exercise, 45%. Eating because of stress, 38%. Eating out regularly, 24%. No time to exercise was 38%. Workplace (laughs) celebrations, happy birthday! (laughs) 18% are gaining weight because of that. How about the office candy jar? 16% of people say that uh, that is what's helping, that's causing them to gain weight. Happy hour to, you know, celebrate getting through the day, 4%. So in the end, 
we're getting we're getting heavier and heavier, and many are blaming our workplace for that. Even though many work uh, organizations are have a culture where they're trying to create a wellness culture. In fact, in some uh, people in some programs, you can actually earn about five hundred and thirty-two dollars a year just for being involved. For example, some uh, wellness programs, so look into them at your, in your organization, will pay you $164 for health biometric screenings, or they'll pay you $132 for quitting, uh, for smoking, stopping your smoking. $111 if you enter into a weight management program in some of these uh, wellness programs. So just know there's resources for you. There's There's places you can go, or you can just you know, continue to struggle. We had a yogurt parfait bar uh, offered by our wellness program to draw everyone in. Everyone will come for some parfait, right? And uh, when they come, then you can learn more about the wellness program. So look into your organization. Or, by the way, if you, if you, you know, don't have a company to go to, look into what your cities are doing. And uh, even the hospital program that you belong to, if you have insurance, you probably yourself have other wellness programs you could be taking advantage of. But there are resources there for everybody. Again, the goal is to become as healthy as we can. And let's do it together, for heaven's sakes. Uh, let's even – let's not just rely on our senators and legislators to bring the health to us. Let's start figuring out how we can take care of ourselves. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. I'm telling you, I've been quite blessed. I had uh, a mom and a dad, neither of which uh, graduated from a university. Um, I think they both may have attended a semester or a quarter or two. But the thing I think that happens to a lot of parents when they don't graduate And for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, we've been hearing the importance of education, get an education, obtain all the education you can. Parents have a weird guilt that, you know, you need to go to school. You get your kids, you got to go to school. You got, you really got to go to school. So I think the generations before my generation, I'm 48 years old, those generations push school a lot. And, um, and I, and I was interesting because my parents that didn't go to school ended up having, uh, three of their four children get college degrees at a master's degree or higher. So we took it seriously. Now, my parents would always read. that. And I don't know that I've ever met anybody that reads more than my mother and my father. They both uh, would read, you know, 10 books a month and uh, very well read, very well, um, very literate, very healthy people. Here's what's happening, though, that I'm seeing as I work at a university now and interact with a lot of younger generations. There's so many other ways to learn. And college uh, education and and universities themselves are losing a lot of trust in the world because, A, it's an institution. But, B, they've been increasing costs for at 300 percent growth in tuition um, over the last 30 years. So – it's creating more and more problems. And I wonder what happens going forward. So I would just suggest to all of us parents that we, that we maybe teach our children the principle of learning, teach our children the principle of, um, of trying to understand, of growth, of development. And it doesn't necessarily have to always be rooted in universities. It doesn't have to always be rooted in schools. It could be rooted in reading books, 
in uh, it could be deeply rooted in using the internet as a better tool for research and understanding. It could be having a family dinner where you ask better questions of one another and you have an engaging conversation. Don't tie learning only to a university. Teach your children the principles of learning, of growth, of questioning, of curiosity. These things, I believe, will serve them long term. I have a son right now that could make uh, more money than probably any of my kids that are in college um, simply because of his talent set and what he's learned on the Internet about running the Internet, editing for the Internet, music for the Internet. He just he's he's got it. And there's not – I'm sure – I'm not sure there's a lot of things he could learn at a university um, except those principles. But just because you go to a university doesn't mean you get those principles of learning and curiosity and uh, quality and values. So be careful. Teach the principle. And then it, you can still push going to school, but make sure that they're, they're trained up in the learning principle and in the being curious principle and in respecting everybody. Why not raise everybody if we can? Why not make universities free to everybody so we can raise our entire society to a higher level so next generations can have even more understanding, more insight, more light? Anyway, just a little, just a little idea for all of us. What part of the problem are you? What part of the solution can you be? What can you do today to go out and start uh, becoming the change that you seek in this world as Gandhi taught us. We'll take a break and come back, continue the journey and the discussion. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you be the good in the world. Zappos, Etsy, eBay, and Amazon are some of the largest online retailers in the world. Online shopping continues to grow, but what does this mean for delivery trucks? Cities like Seattle that were built long before UPS and long before next-day deliveries need to revamp the way they manage commercial vehicles to avoid a sea of traffic. Several months ago, I spoke with Ann Goodchild. She's an associate professor and the director at the Supply Chain Transportation and Logistics Center for the University of Washington. I began the interview by asking Dr. Goodchild about the growing trend of online shopping and how all of those shipments could clog up city streets with delivery trucks. A couple of things. I do think about it all the time. This is your um, job, isn't it, Dan? <laughs> but I think, you know, civil engineers, uh, our work is to make cities work. And the better we do our job, the less you think about it. So it, it is sort of the nature of, of, of transportation systems, of clean water systems, of quality buildings, you know, they're not supposed to be that noticeable. They're supposed to work and, and you get to go about your business. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think congestion, it, it, this is part of uh, um, a real pressing problem at the, at the moment, which is we have a, a transportation system in the United States that largely works on, on the car uh, mm. and on um, – and urbanization and uh, increasing density and increasing populations and, you know, lack of, of growth in that transportation capacity has really led to uh, pretty significant congestion in most urban areas. And, it, you know, another trend to add to that is online shopping and increased delivery services. 
And so it's, you know, when combined with these other trends, it, it is a problem. Wow. It um, Again, these cities and like Salt Lake City has pretty wide streets, um, except still trucks. And all of a sudden you start bringing in a lot of trucks. I mean, when when trucks, when a, one big large semi has to go to one Walmart store and everyone would go to that Walmart store to pick up their stuff and then drive back in their cars, um, it's a little different or take public transportation. It's different than when all of a sudden that truck has to make 150 deliveries to an apartment building. Yeah. Well, so we've looked at exactly that problem. So two things. One in um, – so I'm a professor, so I can I can just talk about – for so long about issues. But um, yeah. you'll have to cut me off. Um, one is we have this thing in, in transportation where if you build it, they will come. Mm. So, you know, the more we build roads, it doesn't make them less congested. It makes people travel more. So there's this sort of feedback between – a, an uncongested transportation network and people's desire to travel. Um, but we have looked at, at this issue of, you know, what's what's more travel, what's more, uh, we talk about vehicle miles traveled, uh, is that a delivery truck making 100 deliveries or is that 100 people traveling to the store and back to their mm. homes again? Because that's actually a lot of travel too. Yeah, right. Uh, it's different vehicles. They're typically personal cars versus a delivery truck. Um, but actually, in most cases, that direct you know, substitution, I mean, a delivery truck is actually better than than because uh, they'll make a tour. Mm. Um, and individual cars, people, you know, do that by themselves and, and do half of their trip completely empty. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, you know, other, that raises other questions about whether online shopping is, is just substituting for the shopping you would have done or whether it's on top of oh, wow, shopping yeah. that, that you would have done. Yeah. yeah, so you're doing both. And then, um, I mean, I guess, too, another issue is just you only have so much space anyway. And so I'm assuming are some of these apartment complexes in big cities, are, are they going to have to start rethinking Parking? Are they? Do they have to rethink just where you stage a car or stage a truck? Do they have to have post office box, you know, places, yeah. blocks from your home where they can get all of this in? What are some of the thoughts they're thinking as you guys are creating this this plan yeah. for the future? What does it look like? Yeah, yeah, and that's that's exactly what is happening now. That's what people are thinking about now, and and in a lot of places in the U.S. and and other countries. People are trying different solutions and seeing what works. You know, it's it is so new and it's um, it reflects a number of, of of pressures. One is, you know, what is the city willing to try? Uh, one is, what do customers want? And then the other is sort of the the limits of the physical infrastructure that we have. So, a lot of of sort of condos or apartment buildings um, have really had to adapt to serving as your as your receiving station for packages and I know our our my office the sort of main office at my work is is full of packages most of the time because they're doing a job that they they didn't do in the past in terms of accepting probably some home 
packages, but right. also a lot of, of packages for work. And we don't have a physical space to do that. So we've actually converted a, an old supply cupboard into a storage space. So they think there's some very kind of physical modifications and newer buildings. I've, I've seen newer buildings built with in, you know an intentional storage space. Um, there's also software systems now that most newer or, or sort of um, really managed apartment buildings have. So they'll have these software systems that allow them to, to note the receipt of the package and then email you or send you a message that your package has arrived um, and, and they're sort of tracking what those, when those packages come in. Um, we're evaluating in the Urban Freight Lab, which is a, a partnership with retailers and, and carriers and building managers and city, the city of Seattle, um, what kinds of things might be good solutions for all of those parties? Because individual companies are, are trying things, right? Amazon has right. Amazon Locker. Amazon, you know, they decide where those are located, and they serve Amazon customers only. Um, the city is interested in in a shared um, possible locker system that would accommodate all companies and all carriers, and that might be at a transit station. Hmm. Um, so that, you know, people taking transit could pick up their package on the way home and that would reduce trips because mm-hmm. they, you know, they would be using their, their regular travel mode and it wouldn't require that truck delivery. It might also improve. There's a, there's some neighborhoods where you can't, where, where people won't deliver. And so that's, you know, that's a disadvantage oh, for, yeah. for people who live in those neighborhoods. And so, uh, you know, a, a locker system that was city sponsored would, would improve the, the access that those people had to online shopping. It's a, you, it, it's really an amazing um, problem because it's a problem. I don't think we ever could have thought about. Well, I right. the mm-hmm. average person wouldn't have thought about twenty years ago, thirty mm-hmm. years ago, um, and yet you you're an associate professor and director at the Supply Chain Transportation and Logistics Center. Mm-hmm. For the University of Washington, a university has a supply chain, transportation, and logistics center, mm-hmm. and it's all of a sudden it seems it's brilliant. We hear stories in the news from like UPS about how they—I can't remember if it's left turn. No, I think they always try to take right turns. That's right. Yep. And everything's a right turn, and everything's a right turn. But if UPS is always doing right turns, and FedEx is always doing right turns, and everyone get, and Amazon starts doing right turns. <laughs> Um, it seems like the rest of us aren't ever going to be able to get anywhere. So, and maybe that's just yeah. my naivete. But it, it's, you really do need these big players to all be a part of these solutions, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And and they can't. Um, the real value in our lab is that these this final we're calling it the final eight hundred feet. So you know, mm. Amazon can can locate warehouses and they can operate those warehouses just like they, you know, just the way they want to. It's a controlled environment. They can design their supply chain just the way they want to, you know, with their information systems. But this last 800 feet, they don't control uh, because parking is, is a shared resource that the city manages and there's a lot of people competing for that curb space. You know, the sidewalk mm-hmm. where they have to walk to make that delivery is a shared resource with lots of goals, you know, not only to serve those delivery companies, but also for you and me walking and for signage and for restaurants or ca- cafes. Um, and then the buildings themselves have 
a number of objectives and, and different ways in which they can receive goods. And, and security. So, yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so it's not like you can just go up to the door. Right, right. Yeah, no, and that's, you know, that's it's different at every building. So this is very messy, this mm. last 800 feet. And, and any individual, like a city or a building or a delivery company, they can't control it themselves. And so they need to come together and and work together and, and balance the different objectives and understand the problem from each other's perspectives. And so that's really what we've created with the lab. And, and out of that, we will come up, you know, we will produce solutions that balance some, you know, security and, and equity and, and opportunity and, and cost and um, mm. environmental impact. And, and so we're looking for what those solutions are. And we've, we've just begun with, you know, mapping what that process looks like. It's quite different in a historic building mm. in, in the oldest parts of Seattle, which were built before cars. Oh, um, wow, yeah. You know, they have a very different infrastructure uh, than a new building, which is, you know, a new condo building downtown, which um, is designed very differently. So what solution you might use is, is quite different in those, those different building types. So we've, you know, we've begun that work, and there are some. I mean, it's fascinating just to see how the system works. And there's some really neat, you know, there's tunnels under the city, and there's there's turntables for trucks, so they don't have to make oh, uh, like the, yeah, turns. yeah, you'd have the eighteen point turn to get yeah. that semi around. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, yeah. So there's some really really neat things, and we haven't, you know, we we actually have we, I mean, the city, and and I guess us you know, collectively as, as communities don't have good kind of maps of that infrastructure. We, we know where the on-street parking is but mm-hmm. because a lot of this infrastructure is in private buildings. Yeah, or in alleys or, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, just establishing where is that infrastructure so that we can look at the questions you mentioned, like what is, you know, the capacity of the city to accept deliveries and how do we improve that or how do, if we want to modify it, what what impact would that have wow. on, on on the delivery company's ability to make do their work? I'm assuming one of the benefits of the future would be, you know, the integration of technology, and um, maybe some of these companies could partner on some of their scheduling programs. Maybe the trucks could show up show up in an order. Uh, is technology going to impact, and how do you see it happening? Yeah, so I think there's te- there's technology. So right now, when you buy something online, say you buy something from Amazon, um, it's very seamless. It's very easy to do. Right, they have that one click ordering, and the delivery process is not so seamless. You ever tried? You know, it's it, they're they're working on it. Yeah. But, you know, trying to track your delivery, trying to figure out where it is, and if you can figure that out, how to redirect it somewhere, that is is not as seamless as the the purchasing process. And so, I think that technology, and it can be, you know, I think there's some there's some market reasons why it's not quite so seamless, but there's technology that's going to improve that delivery process for us. And one of the big costs or, or inefficiencies in the current system is is failed deliveries. So it's quite a high percentage. It can be sort of up to 30% of, of packages have to be attempted more than once. 
And so that's, you know, that's two trips instead of one. <laughs> you know, that's a big waste. Right. And so if we can reduce that number of failed deliveries, that's going to have a big improvement. And so we don't want, that's one of the reasons that, that lockers are a desirable yeah. solution because you don't need to be there, but it's still secure. Um, and the other is if you can track or you can get online and you can, you know, if you know you're not going to be home, you can redirect a package somewhere else. So I think there's a couple of ways that we can use technology, both kind of the software and information side, but also the hardware, the locker side to just reduce the total number of trips necessary. We, it has to be delivered once, but it does not have to be delivered more than once. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, if, the if the truck way, could be so organized that it all goes to one building, one truck, one delivery, one drop-off, one time. Yeah. And, you know, a single company that wants to do that because it's cheaper right. for them than, you know, sending three trucks. But because we have yeah numerous carriers and numerous mm-hmm. companies doing this work, yeah, you know, at my own house, I might have three different delivery companies visiting my house in a day. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, you know, if that was all done by one, one company, that might be one trip. But you know, we, we have competition in our transportation system, and then there's a value on that competition. So it's it's uh, hard to navigate and, and figure, you know, where do we encourage cooperation? Or yeah. I think, we're, I think they're, we're not interested in, in controlling that, but, but encouraging um, efficiency. And, and there's a very natural desire for efficiency because it's cheaper. That's for right. Delivery Save money. Is, yeah. Um, yeah. It also seems like... So many of us spend eight, ten hours of our day at our workplace mm-hmm. that if I could have my stuff delivered to my workplace and my work just saw that as a perk or a benefit, yeah. um, that maybe I had a, a little valet that would help me carry it to my car. I mean, you know, yeah. businesses could take care of their people that way as well. Right, yeah. And there are some services. I mean, Volvo had this service. I'm not actually sure if they're still still doing it, but they would deliver to your car. So the person would have access to your trunk and you know they could actually just put it, instead of bringing it to your work, hmm. bringing it to your house, Take bring it. it to your car. What a great idea. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They already know where your car is. They stick it in your trunk and, you know, that's fine if someone has access to your trunk. Yeah. And then you just drive home with it. So like, you know, it mobile phone, you know, mobile phones, smart devices, the, you know, GPS data, remote access, those technologies open some doors for some really neat, efficient solutions to, and, and they're usually focused on just trying to use the trips that we already take mm-hmm. and, you know, take advantage. You have a lot of extra room in your car. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if, if, if you can take advantage of that, that's already going to be that trip's already going to be made. You know, how can we exploit that with with the information and technology that we have? And we can, and it you know requires some some development of of, of neat logistics systems. But um, we're training people to do that, and and so I think you'll see a lot of innovation in that space. There's a lot of of startups trying to trying to work in that space right now. It's good to know, Anne, and it's good to know that you're on the case because mm-hmm. the rest of us would just you know be surprised by all of this in 10 years. 
when no trucks can make it through the city. Well, we appreciate your time and your energy and your work. Keep it up, and we'll have you back uh, as as your research progresses there at the Supply Chain Transportation and Logistics Center for the University of Washington and Goodchild. We thank you very much. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends. Dr. Matt here. Um, One of the uh, things as we talk about leadership and learning, um, one of my greatest learnings recently in my life has been about discipline. I've always felt like I was not a very disciplined person, Um, which is interesting because You can still accomplish a lot in life even though you don't have a lot of discipline. And uh, I'm going to give you some of the to-dos that I've learned about discipline, and and it really is – it's changed my life, right? So um, one of the first principles I teach about it is we've got to learn to magnify existing discipline rather than trying to generate a new discipline. If that makes sense to you. What I mean by this is everybody has certain gifts. Everybody has certain talents, abilities. And when it, when it comes down to it, for example, one of my great uh, attributes or strengths I, that based on um, an assessment – in fact, let me just tell you where to go do this. If you go to the website AuthenticHappiness.org, AuthenticHappiness.org, you can take an assessment that's called the VIA Character Strengths Assessment. And it will evaluate you on 24 of the top character strengths that uh, that that you know exist, and it comes from years and years of research, over thousands and thousands of um, of years of of writings about character strength. And what they've come up with is basically 24 different character strengths. This is all validated academic research about happiness. It actually comes from Penn State University. So if you go to AuthenticHappiness.org and take the VIA character strengths test, it will rank your character strengths from number one to number 24. And the research shows that when people are really focused on what they do well, their number one strength, then it actually um, makes you happier. And so my number one strength is uh, social intelligence. My number two strength is like um, uh, spirituality. My number three strength is a love of learning. Um, number fourth strength is uh, humor. Uh, fifth strength is perspective and wisdom. So I have these different strengths, okay? And I've actually built my entire career around them. And in those areas, I have a lot of discipline. I'm very disciplined at – paying attention socially to what's going on in the situation or being able to um, find the perspective and wisdom in something. I can I can see that very quickly. My 24th area of strength is actually self-regulation. So I don't regulate myself very well. And what I found is instead of me trying to go generate more self-regulation, what I could do instead is actually get the benefits of regulating by using my other strengths. For example, when I sit with clients and I start to uh, it's easy for me to get backlogged and 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 start having each client go over about five or ten minutes. But what I found is instead of just being a lot better at regulating myself, what I might want to do instead is just use my strengths of social intelligence. Like what is it like to be the person out there waiting for me for 15 or 20 minutes? And when I actually connect into what I'm already good at, I'm better at regulating myself. So use what you already do really well 
to help you be more disciplined. Does that make sense? But in order to do that, you might want to go find out what your character strengths are. I love it because my kids now, we've gone through this assessment together, and everyone in my family knows what their top five or six strengths are. And the rule then would be we're always going to ask them to use those strengths to, to do the things they need to do in their lives. So always start where you already have some success, okay? That's rule number one. Rule number two, choose to focus your firepower. Researchers have found that you only have so much willpower in a day. And it really is a finite resource. And the longer you go in the day and every decision you have to make actually lowers your ability to make the next decision better. Um, And so that's why in the morning you have the ability to get a lot of stuff done maybe. But at the end of the day, you start wearing out. It's called decision fatigue. And many people are suffering from so many decisions in their life that they run out. And by the end of the day, they literally have a harder time getting to the gym at the end of the day. They have a harder time exercising. Um, focus. And so what the one of the a, a great uh, book is called um, Essentialism by Greg McKeon, and he basically talks about a garden hose metaphor where uh, if you if you put your hand on the hose, if you don't put your finger over the end of the hose, you know, you've got like a, a drizzle of water. But the minute you focus it and add a little more pressure, to the end of the hose, you can direct it a little bit easier. So what you might want to do is make sure that you're putting the things that you need to really exercise discipline um, to do, put those earlier in the day and make it so at night, if you, for example, have a tendency to go into the kitchen late at night and start eating, um, one reason that happens is probably because you've run out of willpower. So you'll probably want to create some other way to to focus on it. Sean Acor, in his book, Happiness Advantage, has a rule that he calls the 22nd rule. He teaches that there's a, there's a concept called activation energy. It takes energy to get a project or an activity started, right? It's like momentum. If you want to get something done, in a, you, know, you know, to do a project at your house, it takes energy to get the project started. And the goal would be to always make the energy it takes to get started so easy that you can get it started within 20 seconds. If it takes you longer than 20 seconds to get something started, you're probably not going to do it. Now, by the way, you can take, you could actually take things, activities that you don't want to be doing. Like if you watch too many Netflix shows or whatever, maybe what you ought to do is start making sure that your phone isn't near you. If you leave your phone upstairs in your bedroom and you're down, um, you know, down in the kitchen, you're going to be less likely to go watch the Netflix show because your phone is going to be 20 seconds away. So the goal is very simply minimize your activation energy. Do whatever you can. He gives an example of taking the batteries out of the remote. When he was doing his dissertation, he spent too much time watching TV. So he put the batteries in a completely different part of the house. So every single time he um, needed to use the remote or turn the TV on, he would have to go out to the or up to his room to get the batteries. It's just a simple idea. So discipline, a lot of times, you don't need to be disciplined to do the entire project. You just need to be disciplined enough to do the first 20 seconds and and get started on it. And then the last rule about creating more discipline in your life would be rely heavily on routines. Once you've used and and kind of created the easiest path and the pattern and you know what your greatest strengths are and you are able to focus your time and attention, then make it a routine. Make it a habit. 
I know people that have have now had an incredible discipline of knowing where their wallet and their keys are because they simply made one habit of coming home every day and putting their wallet and their keys in the exact same place every single day. Once you've made something a routine, a habit, right, and the habit eventually will change the way your brain is working because of neuroplasticity, they call it. Once you've done the process over and over and over enough, your brain will just kind of do it automatically. Until then, find a way to actually discipline all your focus and your energy on the routine. And once you make the routine, boom, it'll make life a lot easier, right? Now, there's there's a ton of learning behind all of that and three or four books that you can go get, but start doing something today and don't just chalk it up to uh, – life's hard. I'm not going to do that. Discipline we all need, but again, you also already have existing strengths where discipline is already in there. It's already embedded in you. So start – if you're going to start somewhere, start focusing on what you're already good at and use that to help you through the things that you want to work on more. Uh, that's uh, some basics uh, 101 on discipline and developing discipline in our lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to BYU Radio. What to do with those missed deadlines, violated rules, and broken promises? We all want the people around us, our friends, coworkers, family members to be accountable. But how can we deal uh, with violated expectations in a way that actually solves the problem without harming the relationship? Joseph Grenny is a New York Times bestselling author, keynote speaker, and leading social scientist for business performance. And uh, we had him here not long ago to speak with us about the, his New York Times bestselling book, Crucial Accountability. In that interview, I asked, is it human nature to let other people uh, or for people to let other people down? It is. Stuff happens. You know, sometimes it's because we have expectations that we didn't set appropriately. Sometimes it's because they fall short. But sort of the nature of life is that we're going to let each other down now and again. So the, the real issue is how do we deal with those in the moments, not whether or not they're going to occur. Yeah. And so is that is that what you write about in the book, Crucial Accountability? Well, we kind of came at it from a different direction. We were looking for what we called moments of disproportionate influence. We wondered, are there just a few moments that make the biggest difference in either accelerating intimacy in a relationship, creating connection and trust, or creating division and, uh, and disconnection. Hmm. And as we started looking for those kind of moments, we found that those are moments when people disagree or disappoint. Those are the two big categories. And it turns out how people handle those moments can literally become a trust accelerator. It can actually profoundly deepen the relationship rather than become divisive. So we tend to fear these moments when, in fact, they're the moments of greatest opportunity if we know how to handle them. Oh, interesting. So you, we, and, and we just kind of have a normal conversation. We're having a normal experience, and then all of a sudden, we get to a, a choice point, really, where it's either going where we might disagree or disappoint. And that's a really important moment because it could either drive us to intimacy, I guess you're saying, or you know, send us on to the great you know MMA fight down. <laughs> yeah, and our in our tendency, particularly you know in the in an inner mountain west here, and I know we've got a an international audience here as well, but in a variety of cultures, our tendency in those moments is towards silence. Yeah, and uh, in fact, we just finished a study with about uh, four thousand subjects across the world. We asked them, "What's in your vault?" 
So do you have something that's just been sort of festering in silence for a long time? You've been biting your lip and putting up with it forever and ever. And if you had a magic wand and could open that vault and just let something out, if you could say one thing to one person with absolutely no fear of consequences, because that's what the magic wand's going to do for you, who would you say it to and what would you say? And my goodness, man, <laughs> I, it was just, uh, it was excruciating reading through these thousands of responses. Uh, particularly when we found out people that have been struggling with their husband or wife, with a boss, with a colleague. So one person described how the person in the cubicle next to her, apparently she believes has a cat that urinates on her purse or shoes or something like that. (laughs) It creates this awful stench. And this individual has been living with this horrible odor for four and a half years (laughs) and saying nothing about it. Oh, man. So when we ask people to just sort of open the vault for a moment, They talked about disagreements and disappointments and frustrations and concerns that they had been agonizing with. And here's the point. They seem to believe that silence is really silent when, in fact, it isn't. Silence is often incredibly noisy because if you aren't talking out your concerns, you're acting them out. You're avoiding people. You're acting resentful. You're gossiping. It is showing up in today's relationship. So that's why these moments make such a big difference, because if you choose not to address them in an effective way, they are causing incredible dysfunction and pain. Wow. And and yet uh, this woman could keep it for four and a half years. I mean, really, you, you unleash the Kraken in that research because you've got <laughs> you've got people talking. I bet. I mean, is I, I guess it feels good for them to release it and be able to say it. But none of those people in the, still knew how to go home and really say it. Right. Yeah, they they yeah, didn't the know how to go deal like with it. Or, yeah. When, when you're answering a survey or talking to others, it's, it's sort of like a drug. Uh, it you know, it temporarily reduces the symptoms, but it really doesn't solve the problem sometimes. So yeah. it's like taking a pain reliever. And, uh, and oftentimes gossip serves that sort of purpose that it's a it's a temporary anesthetic, but it really doesn't deal with the issue. Huh. So what when we and we have these issues and. Whether we act on them or whether we talk about them or not, they're, they're, you're saying they're coming out. They're going to be acted out. But you could see people that would you know, have an issue with their spouse and have it for 30 years and never yeah, get it out. Yeah, and that's, that's, ex- that's exactly what the study showed, that you know, we've got people that are saying, you know, I, I, I'd really like to end my relationship with my loved one. I, and they would list these grievances that they'd been accumulating for decades frequently. And, you know, they probably had attempted to bring them up, but probably not in a particularly effective way, or perhaps the other person wasn't receptive to it. But right now what they're doing is just harboring and harboring and building and building, and silence isn't silent. Right. We think we're getting away with not approaching these really vulnerable conversations, and we aren't. We're paying a price every single day. You you have a name for what you call the first thirty seconds of a of a difficult conversation or an accountability conversation. You call it the hazardous half minute. What does that mean? Yeah, well, this this was something remarkable in our research. So as we started finding that these few moments, I mean, it's just a few minutes a week when we have to talk about something emotionally or intellectually tender to us and and vulnerable. We, we found that those few moments made such an enormous difference in organizational performance in our personal lives. So we began to put a microscope on them and, and see how people who deal with them well address things differently. What are the skills? What are the learnable practices that they use? And the remarkable thing, Matt, was that 
we found that you could predict how a conversation with it would end with about 97% precision by watching just the first 30 seconds of it. So how people behave in those 30 seconds disproportionately affects even the next hour and, uh, and how, the relation, how the conversation would come out. Now, now I need to qualify this. We, we spent about 10,000 hours observing uh, people in these moments. And what I'm not suggesting is that if you use the skills appropriately, then everyone's going to agree with you and they'll magically change and give you everything that you want. In your right. Life. That isn't true. What I am suggesting is that you'll get to the end of this conversation, and number one, you will be heard. You'll be able to get your point across. And number two, you'll, you'll have an effect on the relationship that is generally positive. So if you handle these first 30 seconds, the hazardous half minute well, there are just a few things you have to do. Uh, that's the key to the rest of it. Interesting. And, and you're going to get it out. It doesn't mean it's going to be idyllic, but you, you are going to get your information out. You're going to be more likely to be heard and you're more likely to be, um, to what? To get some closure. Yeah, to have an influence. Yeah. And that's, that's all you can ask for. Yeah. So that, no. Because, you know, the truth is we, we come into these conversations with partial truth anyway. Right. Uh, we aren't the possessor of all wisdom, and so you shouldn't hope that the whole conversation is going to move your direction at the end or else your attitude is wrong. You need to be coming in curious and open because if you aren't, then you'll help shut the other person down as well. Yeah. So your goal ought to be able to listen as well as you're uh, expressing yourself and perhaps see things at least somewhat differently by the time you're done. That, again, was Joseph Grenny, uh, author of the best-selling book, Crucial Accountability. Great insight into how to uh, to keep our, our understanding alive and, and our influence alive with other people. Man, it's not easy being human, but it could be a lot easier if you would just spend a little time trying to understand the other. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We're doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. What are we doing with our kids? And are we actually setting them up for success? When you make the argument immediately that you're just trying to protect them, who really are you trying to protect? Is it really your child that you're so worried about that you would, you know, write all of their college essays? Is it your child that you're trying to protect when you do that, or is it you? You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Conflict in your life, how do you handle it? Are you one that uh, that can actually sit back, as our last guest was talking to us about, and and allow the difference of opinion in? Can you suspend your need to react, right? Can you attend to what they're saying and remain influenceable, remain open to what another person is saying? Do you listen? Do you actually listen to what they are saying? And uh, on top of all of it, do you also voice? I mean, a lot of people could sit and listen and be, you know, quiet and passive, and but do you also voice your opinion as well? Do you have, a, do you have the ability to take what they've said and bridge your opinion into theirs. I call it build onto their opinion because what I believe is when we listen to people really attentively, 80% of what they are saying, 
you will probably agree with. So as as a mediator, I would sit down with couples fighting about the biggest issues of their marriage, and they're 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 in a pretty intense argument, and. As we start to kind of, you know, slice down the argument into its its more finite points, what you will find out find out when you get to the more finite points, we have about 80% agreement. There's a lot of stuff we agree on in the argument, but we spend about 100% of our time where we disagree. So do you have the ability to suspend and to make sure that you're not reacting to uh, your emotion inside, this fight or flight kicking in you, in your heart and in your mind that's making your heart race and uh, you want to stop them from saying what they're saying because if I can just stop you from saying it, I guess that would make it not happen or that would make you not think that way. But wouldn't it make more sense to allow some of these ideas out into the dialogue, especially if it's somebody I love and care about and want to influence wouldn't it make more sense to actually understand where they're coming from, right? So that I can understand why they're thinking this way, why they're doing what they're doing, why they're, you know, making or taking this position about something that I hold near and dear to my heart. There is, there's power, folks, in this ability to do it. And I, the funny thing is we expect our, our leaders to be able to do it politically, and yet I believe most of us can't do it privately, most of us struggle to do that personally. Over and over, in fact, tonight as well, I will sit in a room tonight with probably 10 to 12 people, six couples who really have a hard time talking with each other. And and we, we've trained them, we've taught them the skills, and tonight they come and they just practice it. And as they practice it, it is amazing how how hard it is to actually, you know, hold back those horses that want to just run with this issue and stop their partner from saying what they feel or what they think and or in misinterpreting it and taking it to the worst possible level I could take it. Those are unique skills, right? Notice I've talked about suspending, attending, listening, voicing, all very important points, building onto what people are saying. All important communication skills. Do you possess them? Because if you don't, can I just challenge you to go start learning how to do it? You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. We talk about positive mental attitude. We talk about having an open mind and uh, and how those things make a difference. One of the things I think that makes the biggest difference is it's not going to be um, a cliche. It's And there's a ton of research behind all of this stuff. But... The real reason I like being more positive is because I just feel better. Now, some people are like, well, yeah, but sure, you're going to be taken advantage of more. Hey, bring it on. (laughs) Whatever. If you're going to try to take advantage of me because I'm positive, fine. Because when you do, guess what I'll say? Meh. Oh, well, you know, did what I could. And I'll just move on faster. By having a little bit uh, more optimism in me, a little bit uh, more positive mental attitude. I'm not saying I should stick my head in the sand and pretend like there aren't any facts in this world because there are. But I also don't think I need to to just be negative. It's never served me. Um, I sit with people every day in my coaching practice that really are just negative. 
And it's it, remember the negativity. I wouldn't argue it's a strength because we we already know some data in in the happiness advantage, uh, a book that's out talking about the the power of happiness. Um, is one of the data points shows that the most the most um, likely group of of professionals that are most likely to uh, go commit suicide and are the most miserable would be attorneys. And it's not because they're bad people. It's because their profession demands that they always look for the negative. So if you set your life up to constantly be gauging and trying to look for the negative, you will find an uglier life. Positivity is more about um, being able to see the the rainbow, right? Being able to see the emergent property that comes out of the differences between tension and light. And our lives are all going to be filled with some form of tension, some some kind of uh, dark side and some positive side, some light side. And somewhere out of that comes a new reality. They call it an emergent property, right? It's something that didn't exist before. But sometimes you need the clouds and you need the storm and then you, and you need the rain and you need the sun. And when the three can combine, all this tension combines with light, it creates uh, something that didn't exist before. But that light can't come if you don't let it in. If you're not looking for the rainbow, if you're not looking for the opportunity on the other side of the pain, then um, it can be there. How many times have you driven down the road with rainbow up there and you're not even noticing it? And some of us notice it and we're like, eh, well, it's not. It's, only, it's really only two hues. Hmm. Okay, I mean, it's nice, but whatever. We're actually like we're not in awe of the fact that there is a rainbow. Yeah, it's just a rainbow. No, that means – There's no more floods or whatever. So think about it. How effective are you at uh, not just protecting yourself from your cynicism? How effective are you at actually intentionally letting the light in? Everybody we want – I know. We don't want to be hurt. So it's very natural for us to to not want to be hurt so badly that we just can't find the joy. But man, what happens to us as human beings if we could actually – Search out the joy. And everybody, every one of us today, just today, don't, don't do anything else, but just today, go f- try to find three blessings today. Three signs that God is good, that life is good. Just find them. Look for them. And then every day, just maybe try again tomorrow. Let's try, try, try to find three more. And then what's really fun is share those. Share those three joys, those three blessings Share those and, and then just see what happens. A lot of us just don't dare reveal who we are because we're – I guess we're afraid that they'll reject me. They'll, they'll af- we're afraid that if they actually knew who I was, they wouldn't want me. They wouldn't like me. And so it creates bigger problems for us. We, we've been talking about on the show uh, with the earlier guest about the impact of our exercise, and it's just a little tiny thing. You just need a little activity to start to make those chemicals flow. The same is true in our lives, in our relationships. If we could just be a little bit more vulnerable, a little bit more real about what's going on, man, a lot of good stuff could could um, could be improved in our lives. One rule is simply be wholehearted. 
Uh, Brene Brown, a great uh, speaker and author, researcher on on vulnerability, talks about the fact that many of us just really aren't really – we're not wholehearted. We're not wholly in our relationships. We're not even wholly in our job. We're not fully in. And if you're not fully in, you can't derive any benefits of life. If you're not all the way in – then you're you're only getting half as good as as you could be at something. You're only offering half your talent, half of your love, half of your understanding. And so how hearted are you is the question I ask. We, when we talk about being a wholehearted person, and if you thought about your marriage, how wholehearted are you giving in your marriage? How wholeheartedly are you present in your marriage? Um And Brene Brown has a great quote that says, we spend an enormous energy trying to dodge vulnerability when it would take far less effort to face it straight on. Are you so busy fighting and flighting in your relationships? Are you so uh, up and down? Are you so constantly wondering if you're going to be able to make it through this crazy difficult thing? That, that by being so constantly in and out and up and down and trying to avoid being hurt, are you actually just creating more pain and problems for yourself? So one of the suggestions might be burn your ships. Um, Cortez, I guess the, the story goes, when he came uh, to conquer and he arrived to conquer, he one of the, the things that he decided to do was to supposedly burn his ships and make it so the soldiers or was people when they went off to fight, they weren't allowed to uh, ever come back to the ships because the ships would need to be rebuilt. Many would argue they probably didn't burn them, but he just made them unusable. To uh, so it would take a lot of work to actually ever use the ship again. But how are you in your relationships? Have you made it so that you aren't constantly reverting back to the idea that hey, I'm just gonna I can always leave. Um, one of the signs of a, a relationship that's really gone sideways is we start to, uh, you know, search alternatives. We start to think about what we would do, uh, or we start to look at other people. We start to look at other things. We start to, you know, offload our attention and our focus to something else, to some other hobby or something else that actually starts to take the place of our relationship. So think about that. How are you at uh, being fully in in your relationship? because that is one of the key goals of this show, is to help all of us be be the good in the world. And if we can, lift our game up uh, quite a bit in our relationships those in those people that are closest to us. So we'll continue the journey up next. More empty news on the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. You know, for many, uh, when you compliment them or when you congratulate them on something they do really well, it's really hard for them. They feel like it's awkward. They resent it. They don't feel like it's, you know, it's heartfelt. 
it's just it's just hard for some to to accept a compliment. So here to talk to us about why so many struggle with it and what we can do about it is uh, Dr. Catherine Holly. She's a professor of philosophy and uh, in the Department of Philosophy at St. Andrews University in Scotland. She's also a member of the board of the St. Andrews Center for Exoplanet Science, and her main areas of expertise are ethics uh, and epistemology of trust, promising um, and competence. And uh, she's here to talk with us today. Catherine, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, good morning. What good is to be here. what? Why is it so hard for so many to um, actually receive a compliment and, and accept the compliments they're given? That's a great question. I think, I mean, it can vary from person to person, but sometimes I think it's because people have had bad experiences in the past. So maybe they've had compliments from people who turned out just to be trying to to get something from them or to kind of mislead them or to or to to treat them badly in the end. Sometimes it's because people lack confidence in themselves. They think they don't really deserve compliments. So that if someone's trying to give them a compliment, it shows that there must be there must be some underlying motive or something bad going on. But I think sometimes also it's because you know, we receive compliments and it makes us think, oh, now I really have to do well in the future. Or, you know, it makes us worry about letting people down later on because now the expectations are even higher. It's so true. And um, it, some of this goes back to the, the theory of imposter theory that we've heard many express. Um, in fact, uh, uh, Maya Angelou is a, a Nobel laureate here in the um, United States or a uh, I think she was a maybe not a Nobel uh-huh. laureate, but she um, she. No, I think you're right. Yeah, I think she was, and she, but she always talked about every time she'd release a new book, um, and people would come up and talk to her about it. She always felt like they just don't know me. I mean, if they really knew who yeah. I was, and and she talked about how she feels like an imposter. But teach us about this imposter theory. Yeah, I mean, it's that's amazing, isn't it? That someone could reach such heights of success and fame and be admired by so many people, and yet to still feel that she, you know, she was an imposter, that she didn't really deserve to be where she oh, is. Yeah. Um, so this, yeah, this imposter syndrome is something that really a lot of people seem to experience, even when looking at them from the outside, they seem to have success with their professions or family or whatever it is that they're pursuing. Um, They seem like someone who ought to have confidence and to believe in themselves, and yet inside they feel that really they've they've just got where they are through luck or through other people not really noticing that they don't deserve what they have. Um, And so they, they, they find it difficult to accept praise from other people. They think that this the time is coming when people are going to realize how inadequate they really are. Mm. And this can cause huge anxiety for people, no matter how successful they are on the outside. Does because and I guess this is just human nature in some way and also how we've been raised. And like you, the examples you gave, the people that have given mm-hmm. us compliments in the past, is it um, it seems like it, it could actually be debilitating if we take it too far. That's right. So for some people, it causes it can cause a lot of inner stress and anxiety. Sometimes that leads to people giving things up, thinking, "Well, this is just not for me." You know, even though I've, you know, I've got good grades in college, or I've been offered this good job, I'm not really good enough for it, so I won't pursue it. Other times, people do pursue professional success despite these feelings, 
but what it can lead to is a kind of perfectionism and you know crazy amounts of hard work because they feel like they always have to make more effort than other people in order to to overcome this this feeling of being an imposter mm. and either way that's that's bad for people's well-being and happiness it, it makes it difficult to, for them to enjoy the success that they've earned and this is even against the data that they can see so even if they can see data that shows how good their success is they still don't believe the data yeah, that's right. So they may, yeah, like they're getting, as I say, getting good grades in school or in college, or maybe they've been offered a promotion or offered a great job that they've they've always dreamed of, or people are telling them that they've done well. They've even won a Nobel Prize, as in that case. Yeah. Um, you know, so this is people who are getting, yeah, the external credit and praise, and yet they don't, they find it hard to internalize it, to take it within themselves and really believe that they deserve that success and that they're able to continue it into the future. I think that's often key when we get that kind of praise or we get those external successes. For, for some people, for some of us, it can cause us just not to in, sit back and enjoy that, but just to worry about what's coming down the line. People are going to expect even more of us. Are we really going to be able to live up to this great image other people seem to have of us when we don't mm. feel like that's what we deserve inside? And you, in your research, um, you've actually even found, I guess, a correlation between uh, the um, the one that can't take the compliment and the imposter theory or syndrome mm-hmm. member and conspiracy theorists. Well, that's right. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to overplay this. It's not that everyone who has imposter syndrome is also a conspiracy theorist or vice versa. Um, you know, these can these can be different for different people. But I it did I did find that there was some. In an interesting way, both of them involve a kind of distrust, right? So the person who has imposter syndrome distrusts the compliments and the praise that she's receiving, right? She thinks that other people are in some way misleading her or maybe that they don't really know what they're talking about. She doesn't, she doesn't believe what other people say about her being smart or, or good at her job. And there's a kind of similarity there to the way that someone who believes in conspiracy theories also distrusts what's in the mainstream media or what experts or scientists or government are saying. They think that the, these official sources of information are misleading them or that they don't really know what's going on. So although they can feel different from the inside, the imposter syndrome person is looking inwards and feeling bad about herself, whereas someone who believes in conspiracy theories is often looking outwards and feeling bad about the government or how, about how things are run. But in, so there's that difference between them, but the similarity is that they both involve distrusting what other people say. And that's, that strikes me as an interesting connection between them. Absolutely. And then um, you make a really good point in your article on, in Psychology Today about the fact that mm-hmm. if, we di- if we distrust external sources, then um, whether it's an imposter th- syndrome or a conspiracy mm-hmm. theorist, um, it, then external people can't necessarily convince you otherwise. So it, it almost makes it useless to try to tell somebody they're great if they won't hear it. Yeah, that's right, in both cases. So so we see with conspiracy theorists, if, you, if you're trying to talk them out of their view, whatever evidence you can come up with, they'll say, aha, that's just what they want you to think. You know, yeah, in right. a way, the, the evidence that, we, that other people think goes against the conspiracy theory is just more grist to their mill. That's, that's what they would expect to see. And something like that with imposter syndrome as well. And again, I don't want to say they're exactly the same thing, but there's a similar pattern. So someone with imposter syndrome, if they, if they confess to you that they feel bad about themselves or they don't really think they deserve their success, if you just can say in return, no, come on, you're great, look at your grades, look at that job offer you had, 
that doesn't help them really because they already are discounting that kind of evidence. They're thinking of that as somehow mistaken or misleading. And so it's, it is quite hard to know how to get through to, to people who feel this way. I mean, some of us will have experience there are people in our family or friends or, or, or people at work who struggle to believe in themselves. And just telling them to believe in themselves doesn't, doesn't really cut it. That's, that's, that's the kind of thing that they're used to hearing, and they're used to writing that off as not really helpful. That's so true. So um, in, in your research and in your work, what have you found mm-hmm. works? What, what can we do that would actually make a difference with somebody that won't accept a compliment? Yeah, well, that's a great question, because I think it's, it's important to see that comes to all of us, right? This is a problem for the person who's in this situation, but all of us should be thinking about what, what can we do to help people around us who feel this way. And um, what my view is that it's really got to be about actions, not just words, right? So it's, if, if you're receiving, someone's receiving compliments, so someone's telling them they're doing a great job, or they're, you know, they're giving them compliments on their appearance, or whatever it might be, but they don't seem to be treating them well in other ways, then that's when compliments are difficult to accept. I think if you want to make someone feel confident about themselves, to feel good about their abilities, their talents, um, then you have to show that with what you do by trusting them, giving them things that you, you, you trust them to do, by not checking up on them the whole time, by you know showing through what you do as well as through what you say that you have faith in them. And I think in the end, you know, if anything can help, then that's what it's going to be. It's actually acting out the compliments as well as just saying them. That's so true. We're speaking with Catherine Hawley, who is a Ph.D. in the Department of Philosophy at St. Andrews University in Scotland. She's also um, an expert in the ethics and epistemology of trust, promising and competence, uh, and uh, wrote a wonderful article in Psychology Today about why can't you accept uh, a compliment And we're talking to her about that research. Um, Catherine, one of the things, I mean, it seems like uh, the idea is maybe we're all too used to using words to try to convey trust. um, And, and, you know, we make promises, but we don't follow through on them. And and you're saying in the end, it might really be the the best indicator for many might just be your your long-term actions on the issue, not just your words. I think that's right. So when, when, so again, there's a different story for different people, but often when people can't accept compliments, it's exactly because in the past they've had bad experiences where maybe someone said nice things to them, but then treated them badly. And so you come to associate being complimented with, with some kind of shallow motive or something bad going on behind the scenes. And so if you're dealing with someone who's in that situation, who's maybe had bad experiences in the past, I think, yeah, really the key thing that you can do to help them is to show through what you do and over the longer term that you really do trust them, that you, you know, you're, you don't, you're not just saying nice things or trying to compliment them to make them feel happy or feel good about themselves. You really are relying upon them and, and treating them as someone who's, who's a capable person who can be trusted to get, on with, to, be get, to get on with their responsibilities. And I think that's, in the end, that's what makes the most difference to people is seeing how what we do, not just what we say. What can I do um, if I personally have you know self-identified as uh, somebody maybe with imposter syndrome that mm-hmm. that really has a hard time accepting a compliment? What can I do to actually maybe cognitively think through it better and 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 maybe trust more what's being said? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, there are no easy solutions here. Um, but, but some advice that, that's often given to people is, so, so one thing is to try and talk about it. I mean, that can be difficult because if you feel like you're in a job that you don't really deserve or you're at college and you don't really deserve to be there, it can be scary to open up about that some, to somebody. But almost always when people do open up, they find that other people feel in similar ways. And it can be, as you said, you started off the section talking about Maya Angelou and her feeling like an imposter. And I think finding out how common this is, how many people feel worried about this, can actually be quite helpful to people. You realize, oh, it's not just me. Right? There are other people that are in this situation. Yeah. Um, I think another thing that works for some people, not for everybody, but is to... Um, Think about what advice you would give you yourself if you were a friend of yourself, if you see what I mean. So yeah. kind of step outside of yourself and think, well, what would other people be advising me here? You know, and that, that can be helpful to take a little bit of distance from your situation and think, well, I should recognize you know, that if, if one of my friends was saying this to me, I would be trying to talk them out of it. I wouldn't be going along with it. So taking that, yeah, to having a bit of distance can help. But also I think and again, this is something for all of us, is to bear in mind that if you're feeling bad about yourself, right, sometimes that's not because of anything that you've done or anything that you can do about thinking differently. It can sometimes be because you're in a difficult situation. Maybe there's some bullying going on in your workplace or just an unsupportive environment or a difficult situation in your life. And sometimes recognizing that these feelings come from outside can be, can be helpful as well because otherwise people get trapped into a situation where they feel bad about themselves and then they feel guilty for feeling bad about themselves right. and then they feel bad about not being able to fix themselves and that's just kind of going, making things worse and worse. So stepping outside of yourself a little bit and recognizing that sometimes bad feelings come from being in a difficult environment, I think that can, that can be helpful. Yeah, it can go a long way, especially too, I mean, sometimes maybe just keeping top of mind that you tend to have this habit. I mean, it, just being aware mm -hmm, that you have mm -hmm. the habit of discounting compliments, just that might be enough to start helping you, you know, evaluate and look for other data. I think that's right. So knowing that there is something called imposter syndrome, knowing that other people feel this way, knowing that your friends would kind of try, tell you to snap out of it if they heard you thinking this way. Yeah, remembering that this is a pattern of thought that you can slip into, that can, that can be a helpful thing. Um, just recognizing that's, that's the imposter syndrome speaking again, you know, and so thinking of that as something that you can you can try and push back against. That 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 can often work for people. Do you think? Um, how do you think we're doing at just having a having dialogue on this issue? It seems like we we really don't talk about this this angle of life, or and we also don't talk about trust and promises and promise breaking, and the comp and competency mm -hmm. as a way of trust. We don't talk about that as much as. It seems like we probably should, just in the general conversation. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think we, sometimes there are times when we have these conversations about trusting government or trusting the banks or trusting big corporations, and those are important issues as well. But it's also important, you know, with, with the people that we deal with day to day, thinking about not just who can I trust, but how can I be a trustworthy person? Well, how can I be someone who other people can rely upon, how can I be someone who keeps her promises? Um, and I think thinking about that can be helpful when we're thinking about what commitments to take on, whether how, how to avoid being overcommitted in our lives. I think sometimes we, when we think of distrust, we think of untrustworthy people, we think of kind of mean people who are trying to rip us off, but often we fall into being untrustworthy just by accident, by just having too much to do, too many 
too many balls in the air, too many plates to spin, and we end up letting people down through trying to be helpful. And I think that's something we could talk more about, is thinking about how sometimes the most trustworthy thing to do, the thing that will help other people most, is actually to say no from time to time and just say, no, I just have enough on my plate already. I can't take on something else. Mm. Um, and that, that, I think, can be difficult to hear, but it's, it's an important conversation for us to be having. But And it's, it's interesting because we do talk a lot more too, uh, about credentials and, um, you know, degrees Mm -hmm. and going to the best schools as kind of key traits that we need to possess or or things that we need to have. But trustworthiness is kind of seems old fashioned to many. Yeah, I know. But without it, none of those other things mean very much. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we, you know, there are a lot of smart people about the place and a lot of well-educated people, but um, by itself, that's not enough. If you think about who who are the people that you want to have in your life, who are the people that you want to be working with, working for, um, then trustworthiness is really crucial to that because, you know, if you don't have trust in a relationship, whatever other wonderful things are, are going on, that's, you know, you're never going to be able to fully relax into it and really enjoy the relationship, enjoy the company of other people. Um, trust, I think, is at the heart of, of, of most of what we do in society. So true. Well, Catherine, we, we appreciate you and uh, your great research there at St. Andrews uh, University in Scotland. Thanks again for being on the show. We know you're, uh, you're always willing to be on with us when we, when we can get you. Catherine Hawley is her name. Again, a PhD in the Department of Philosophy at St. Andrews University in Scotland and doing what she can to walk us through trust and her great research on the topic. We'll continue the journey up next to a little Coach's Corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. you boy you too stupid to do what your coach tells you because life doesn't come with a handbook you need a coach here's dr matt and his coaching corner lay ball lay ball welcome back friends you know um so we we want to grow trust with people and and there are ways to know if people trust you and remember somebody trusting you or not trusting you it's not always about you because sometimes if somebody came from a harder history or, or a hard or difficult past, they may have a harder time trusting anyway, right? But um, there are some truths that I found that uh, I think are kind of universal. They're, they're universal truths that help us to access the hearts of others. And if you want to have more influence where you can help get into people's uh, hearts, where they'll share their heart, well, where they're more open to you, I believe that these truths that we're going to talk about right now um, are, are major ways, doors that we can open to create a, a more trusting environment. First truth is that people tend to trust others who understand them the most. Doesn't mean you always have to agree, but people, uh, whether you know, people trust those that get them. And we tend to not trust people that don't get us which is why we're less likely to share more and more of our heart with people that don't seem to handle the little bit we've shared. The fastest way to get people to listen to you is not to keep talking, but to try to actually learn the language that they're using, figure out what they're talking about, show that you can understand them from their frame of reference. And um, we use our gut to help us with that. And the more that I sense that you're getting me, that you're understanding me, that you care about what I'm saying – the more likely I am to actually open up and give you more. 
And if I don't sense that, then I'll, I'll probably turn on more of my fight or flight and I'll shut down and I'll have to either freeze and not give you information or flee and run from you or fight you on it. So do the people around you – so as you think about those that you want to influence more, do the people around you feel like you really understand them? Uh, does the person you're trying to influence sense that you truly understand and care? Just a basic truth, right? Uh, second truth, access to the heart. So if you want to get into someone else's heart and get into understanding them, it must be given to you. It can't be coerced from them. Um, people don't trust people that aren't straightforward or that are you know, coercive or pushy. Or um, – by the way, it doesn't mean you can't get information, but what you've done is you've made getting information the next time even harder. Human beings have agency. We are free agents. We have free will, which means that we have to know that we can exercise our closeness and our intimacy and closeness and connection with you on our terms. So it's always up to me to be able to decide that. You can try to take that closeness. You can try to demand it. You can try to manipulate for it. But the minute you do, you alter the relationship. So if you're trying to influence them before you try to understand them, if you're trying to demand certain things from people, you still may get what you want. But they will also be building a wall between you and them. And it will make it harder and harder to get deeper, more impactful, more connected uh, relationship with that person. So um, your position is great. Your hierarchy, your status is wonderful. Whatever leverage you have, be careful using it if you're going to use it at the expense of the free will or the free agency of another person. The minute you are leveraging anything external to, to usurp my agency, you're violating a principle. And when you violate that principle, it doesn't mean you still won't win right now. But what it means is long term, you will lose the relationship. You'll lose my trust with you. Okay. Rule number three, all conversations that we have with other people are identity conversations. You cannot have a talk with another person that doesn't in some way start to impact the identity of of them. There is always looming underneath every conversation is the what I call the identity conversation that is the every human being has this sense of worth and value. So if you bring up a simple thing like, so are you ever going to get better grades? <laughs> See how inherent in the question is an identity issue. Do you, do you, do you like being single? Inherent in the question is an identity issue. Um, How much money do you make? Inherent in the question, there is an identity issue going on, right? Are you happy in the marriage? Mm. So instead of fighting the the generic issue, recognize that underneath every issue, there is also identity being played, right, And, and, and in play. And so that's sometimes why you might be arguing one point, And not knowing why we can't just get an answer to this question, like why are you getting all mad because I brought up your income? It's not a big deal. Well, it is a big deal because the identity is in play. Or the why is it a big deal that I talk about you being single? Well, because my identity is in play. So do you have compassion for the identity issues that are coming up in those conversations that you're having? 
It's always going to be there and you need to pay attention to that side of the conversation. And uh, one more point that we ought to make sure we're always looking at if we really want to build trusting relationships is to recognize that every conversation that we have currently also has a past. It has a present and it has a future, right? So every conversation is not just based in some vacuum of just right now. Every word that I use, every, every, every concept I think of has a history. Everything has a future. And um, how we talk about it today will be impacted by how you have talked about it for years in the past and what you expect to happen in the future. You cannot have a conversation today that's not impacted by the past or the future. So make sure that you're, you're playing, letting that come into play a little bit. And that's why we probably ought not assume we know what anyone means because I haven't been with you through your whole past. I don't know what everything means to you. So when somebody says, oh, this movie's so dumb, you don't have to be offended by it. You can just assume that must – okay, there's something about her past and her present she's not liking about this and then get in and explore it and be curious. Find out what what have I missed? And you might find out, well, I just hate these movies like this because you always know how they're going to end up and then they might list the five movies they've seen that ended up the exact same way. Relationships are complicated and so is trust and so is uh, being truthful with one another and we don't need to react. We don't need to – We don't need to hate each other quickly. We just can love each other and make it safe. Just make it safe and recognize that there's a lot more going on that you may be thinking about. Anyway, it's just my idea. It's just a simple little coach's idea. We'll continue the journey, folks. More straight ahead. We're going to continue some interviews with uh, Joseph Grenny about uh, his book, Crucial Accountability, How to Be Accountable When Things Don't Always Go So Great. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. You know, what are you supposed to do when people around us have missed deadlines, they violated rules, they've broken promises, whether it's our friends, our coworkers, family members, wherever it is, at some point we need to have a conversation of accountability and how we can deal with these violated expectations. And so we thought, who could help us with this but Joseph Grenny? He's a New York Times bestselling author, a keynote speaker, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Crucial Accountability. We had him on the show a while back, and we wanted to ask him um, and actually revisit some of his wonderful points so that we could learn how to do this. Uh, in the interview, I asked him, what should we do before we have an accountability conversation? Well, so there's, there, there's uh, two sets of things. The first is things you better do before you ever open your mouth. <laughs> and the, and the, the second is what we tend to crave. We just wish that there was a magic script or something. And so I can give some uh, suggestions from what we've seen that's very effective once you do open your mouth. So the, the, the first piece really is make sure your own emotions are clear before you open your mouth. We often don't do that. So yeah. when people let us down, it often triggers a whole ca- cascade of emotions inside of us. And if you don't deal with those, they will govern the outcome of the conversation. You just can't fake it. You, are, you aren't a good enough actor. So if you're feeling hurt or diminished or angry or scared, 
you need to pull aside, you need to process those emotions in a safe and effective way. And the book Crucial Accountability describes some really great strategies that people use for understanding, appreciating, and validating their own emotions. So mm. that's a really critical yeah. piece of first work. And often we don't do that. We no, it, no. right into trying to fix it. Yeah, we just kind of wing it, don't we? But you don't yeah, wing your yeah. emotions or they'll wing you. <laughs> Yeah. Amen. So so yeah. we so we sit down, we kind of make sure we're centered. We know what our real emotional uh pains are. We 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 just want to be aware, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, it's taking responsibility for your emotions. So if you feel hurt or violated or what have you, own it and take responsibility for it, but validate it and appreciate it. So that's that's real important inner work that has to be done before you open your mouth, and mm. that's often where we go awry. That's good. So once we got our emotions taken care of, then what? All right. So now now it's time to go public. Now the challenge is the other person is probably in an emotional fra- emotionally fragile place too. So we need to be aware of that. There are three things you've got to do in those first 30 seconds. The first has nothing to do with the disappointment that you're wanting to address. So if, if they've let you down, we often want to leap right into that as an issue. Yeah. You need to understand that human beings are hardwired to, to scan the environment for threats. So, so just, just a little bit of background on the brain science of this. When you enter a room, even if it's not sort of an emotionally uh, uh, challenging situation, when you're in a room with other people, you are consciously or unconsciously scanning that room for threats. You're, uh, you're, you're aware of, am I dressed right? Am I appropriate or not? Are people going to judge me? And how am I going to feel? Where should I sit? Should I stand? Should I, you know, all of these sort of things are happening in our minds. We're looking for anything that could make us physically or emotionally at risk. The, the same is, is true tenfold uh, during a crucial conversation. When you enter a moment where you feel emotionally vulnerable or some outcome of yours is at risk, the, your sensitivity to any evidence that the other person means you harm or could prosecute an ill intent against you is heightened. Mm. All you have to do to make another person feel unsafe during a crucial conversation is nothing. Yeah. I mean, think, think about it for a minute. Yeah. If the other person is just stoic and giving off no expression at all, you feel threatened. Totally. And so your first task during a crucial conversation is to generate evidence that the other person is safe with you. Hmm. You have to intentionally and effectively let them know two things. The first is that you care deeply about their interests, concerns, or problems. So you, you have to generate evidence for them that whatever current concerns or fears they've got in this moment, you care about those. Now, this does not mean you're going to take responsibility for those. This does not mean you're going to cave in. This doesn't mean you're going to fix everything for them. All it means is that you care yeah. and that you, you don't intend them harm. So that's the first thing that you've got to do. We call that creating a condition of mutual purpose. That's great. They need to know that you care about their interests and yours. The second is you have to generate a condition we call mutual respect. They need to know not just that you care about their problems, interests, and concerns, but also that you care about them. Now, this gets especially problematic if they've behaved in a way that you find despicable or right. loathsome. Yeah. If they've harmed you or hurt you or insulted you, it's hard to feel respectful or generate that feeling of respect in those cases. But, but the, the principle here goes back to that first thing, that inner work that you've got to do. You've got to deal with your own provocation or judgments and, uh, and triggers and get that out of the way so that you can see them as a person worthy of civility and respect right. and then generate evidence that you see them that way. 
Because that goes back to your values, right? That's your principles. I, my general principles would say I should treat people with respect, even if they're yeah. not. Yeah, it does. You know, always the nicest people. I'm, I believe in respecting people. And I think those lofty principles get lost in the impulse of the moment. Yeah, exactly. So when, when when something's triggering for us, it's easy to lose it. But I think you're right. That is a fundamental thing that we'd all agree on. So yeah. That's our that's our first job. Then we've got to kind of convince them we are we really do care yeah yeah that's right so there, there are a lot of ways that we do this again we're letting them know we care about their interests we're letting them know that we care about them now now the key here is understanding this isn't a trick or a technique so a lot of people say great well so what do i do i smile and, and i let them know hey i mean you no harm and then i move on right right no <laughs> that's what everyone's thinking right yeah the, the way you'll know you're done with step one is you'll see them exhale, their shoulders will relax, they'll look like they're finally a little bit open uh, to the conversation. As soon as you see that body language that says, okay, I think they feel safe, then you're ready to proceed to step two. Until you see that, you're not ready. Yeah, until they relax. Right, so yeah. this isn't about just delivering a script, right. precisely. That's good. What, so what's step two once we can get there? We've got about two minutes. Okay, so ha- all right. So having created safety, the second op- the, the second uh, um, the second thing is what we have been waiting to do, and that is describing the problem. The trick here is to uh, to strip out all of the judgment language we like to use to just be factually clear about what we expected and what we got. Yeah, the gap. So it's letting them know, hey, I, I thought you were going to pick me up at two o'clock. You actually arrived at two thirty. Now, you notice in what I said that there were no judgment words. It's not emotionally laden. What we tend to want to do in that moment is to say, hey, you just, you, you just blew me off. Yeah, you left uh, me you, hanging, right? Yeah, yeah, you just dumped me. You, you couldn't care less about me. We want to put all that in. The second principle is just describing the gap factually. And finally, the third step is to put yourself in a condition of curiosity and ask for their point of view. Hmm. And now you move to inquiry. So you've, you've stated the problem. And now you need to show as much interest in their view of it as you have uh, for your own. So those, those are the three basic things we got to do in those first few seconds. Well, and those are really interesting principles. Like, so non-judgmentalness is really kind of the second one. But, and the third one is curiosity. Because then I, I might actually get data from them that validate or clarifies why they're late. They, they may give me yeah. new data that convince, uh, shows me that, oh, yeah, oh, okay. Well, yeah, sorry, I had a flat tire. Oh, yeah, okay, they, well, yeah. exactly the case. You, you'll, good. you'll sometimes get new information. Sometimes you'll just get new perspective on yep. the information that you've already got. You understand their motives or fears or concerns in a way that, that softens you. Yeah. Or just, yeah, you might just get reconfirmation that they struggle doing anything on time. I mean, you know what yeah, I mean? That, sometimes that, it's that, just more information, good. right? I mean, the cool that's thing right. about the yeah, whole thing is, Joseph, I just think you've you've really done a great job in in saying, look, these are hard conversations, but there's general ba- – I mean, there's basic principles that will carry you through it if you'll just stick in it and stay in the conversation and be willing to have it. There are. And what we hope that, uh, that the book, that Crucial Accountability and Crucial Conversations does for people is just give them handles. Just give them ways of breaking apart this morass of emotion that's going on because these are difficult moments. They're the, they're the most challenging of our lives. And so hopefully having a few handholds will help people take it apart, slow it down, and get to the place they really want to be. 
Good stuff. That's Joseph Grenny and his book, Crucial Accountability. Man, do we need uh, more and more of that in our lives? How to just relate and connect to one another. And this is the Matt Townsend Show.